it is it wild that there's two posthumous post posthumous posthumous dude post there's two posthumous yo it's okay so welcome to money for nothing i'm sam backer i'm here with saxon baird it's a it's a bummer of the of a chart week the two biggest selling records in america i mean we've talked about this before by biggest selling biggest streaming plus bundling the two top records on the charts are both by young brilliant dead black young men yeah it's it's a bummer and we're talking here about um juice world and pop smoke yeah it's it's tragic it's a huge bummer and i was looking at number one albums of artists who were no longer alive i came across tupac and i came across biggie and i know that's like kind of like a blunt comparison but it's just you know here we are like 20 25 years later and it's kind of still happening so just for anyone who hasn't been following it both these uh artists very much on the upswing of their career uh, both in their early, early 20s. I think Juice World's a couple years older than Pop Smoke, who's like 19 or 20 or something. 21, barely. Really young. Juice World OD'd on the tarmac of an airport in Chicago. And Pop Smoke was murdered brutally in um, a still unsolved home invasion in a house him and his friends were renting in L.A., and now they both got albums, uh, respectively, one and two on the charts. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it's interesting. I think I think Tupac and Biggie is actually not a bad comparison um, because I think that it tells you something. The space between this kind of these kind of deaths and then the fact that they're happening like this and, and you know, these two artists are only a handful of, like, I counted five major, major hip-hop artists who died in the past two or three years. Little Peep. XXX, Juice World, Mac Miller, Pop Smoke, um, which is a lot of, and these are not like, these are like all of those guys are major talents, like every single one of them. Yeah, and you've um, you've mentioned to me before about how it, you know it kind of like oftentimes will, it you, or you've worried rather about it leaving a sort of so much of a gap that maybe movements in music are like suddenly like come to like a grinding halt because of it yeah i mean contingency is real right like like do you have rock in the 90s if like kurt cobain and chris cornell died in 1990 would it be the same like probably not like you have some major guys you'd still have pearl jam there's still but there wouldn't that sense of like a generational cohort shaped by a similar group of influences um wouldn't have happened but 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 back to biggie and tupac i mean one of the things that's really been is interesting about biggie and tupac um is like so they're both murdered and then i mean correct me if i'm wrong but like no like top level a-list rapper i mean there's clearly a lot of deaths um but no a-list rapper is killed uh, is murdered for for years and years and years. Someone put in jail or incarcerated, but I no. Don't... So people people are incarcerated. But I'm talking people are incarcerated for sure. 
But I think that's a different problem and a different set of institutions that are happening. And part of it's like, I think that people got serious about security, right? Like you read about Notorious B.I.G. and it's like there's threats and he's like in Hot 97 getting his chain snatched and like all kinds of like conflicts are happening and there's like, there's no real security. And my sense is that like rappers get for real security. (laughs) And so then there's a question of like, okay, so it's 20 something years later a little bit less than 20 years later, and, like, why are people dying again? Yeah, I mean, it's a hard question to ask. and I don't know if it has a very clear answer. Like, part of me feels like some of it is, like, drug cycles, right? Like, heroin's a dangerous drug, and when heroin is big, artists die of heroin. Um, um, no, I don't know. Like, and, and you've done stuff about this. I mean, talking about, like, uh, Dance Hall in Jamaica, where, like, the switch from um, from weed to, like, harder substances changes the music and changes the vibe i mean it changes um, the mu- it changed the music and changed the vibe but it also you know it it affected the scene just because it was such a major you know illegal commodity and so you know you're you're you know in, in my you know some in my research and things that i've produced for afropop worldwide shout out and written for other places like large up you know in my research you also find that you know Jamaica was a very unstable place in the 80s and the 90s, um, and in some ways it still is. And you had a lot of artists fleeing to New York and then getting caught up in that drug trade because they could make quick money. And because also, like, a lot of, without going too deep into it, but, like, a lot of Jamaican street gangs that were politically aligned also fled and then actually took over, like, the crack game in places like uh, Brooklyn and, and, and elsewhere. And you had people, you had major artists like Tenor Saw, which everybody probably even if they know that if they know the name or not, probably knows a song from him. And, you know, he ended up dying at, you know, I think also 21 in a strange accident in Houston, but was definitely caught up in the crack trade after being probably arguably, you know, in it as a teen, as a, you know, 19, like the biggest dance hall star in Jamaica. So yeah, definitely that, you know, I think that, you know, it's a little off topic, but that definitely like reflects what also does happen here where you do get these drug cycles and then, Music, which is always connected to drugs, you know, tragedy happens because of it. And in that case, you and know, so we have like Juice World. I mean, we talk. It's a it's a fucking depressing time out there in the world. Yeah, and it's like, really reflective of the fact that the top two records are from really young, extremely promising rappers who I hear all over town, and I hear, you know, um, on the radio and everywhere else, <laughs> have the number one and number two records and are like, you know, dead. But you also brought up this. You've also brought up this point before about you know you were mentioning security after Biggie and Tupac, and you know the question does kind of arise like where was Pop Smoke's cause security or like in Juice World's case like where was like his team of people around him who you know when the FBI agents are like getting on the plane or whoever it was DEA or whatever instead of him just like eating all of his drugs somebody's like I'm gonna take the fall you, you read a lot about like people are like oh these kids they got so fat famous so fast and that is true like your ability to blow up off a single that you've put up online but I actually like that's sort of always been true right like Elvis went in a year from basically nowhere to one of the biggest stars in America, two years tops. Like the 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 sense that you could go from being from a kid to a major star in a second um, is not new. I th- I think what's new is is the 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 
is for one thing, the churn of how fast stars come and go. And B, I think that the, the way that labels are structured, right? That because so much money has been taken out of the music economy in recent years, labels are running tight, right? They used to have money to pay a lot of people to kind of hang around and like, sure, like do all kinds of terrible things and run up money on the artist's account and like bring catering, but also like, to make sure the guys in Led Zeppelin didn't die. And like, no, they were not successful in the case of Led Zeppelin, but like also they kept those guys alive for a long time. And I think part of the reason that investment's worth it in say 1970 is there's an expectation that you're gonna have a 10 year career and you're gonna produce nine albums. And I think that, I mean, I don't know as much about the case of Pop Smoke. Um, in the case of Juice World, it feels like that's like a failure of management, right? He's on the tarmac, FBI agents are coming onto the plane or police are coming onto the plane and he takes all the drugs. And that seems like there's not someone there being like, no, 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 we got this. Either you'll take the fall, but like, we'll get you out. Don't worry about it. Or um, someone else, you know, that there's a, a lack of organization and structure and like caretaking on these artists with tragic results. No, yeah, 100%. It, it just... Particularly in the case of like, I mean, Juice World, it just seems absolutely baffling, and <laughs> that you know that there wasn't somebody there, or there wasn't like you know, like, so you get run up on a drug charge, it's fine. We got lawyers, we got label support. Label support has you know, label has lawyers. Like, we'll figure it out. We'll get it. You know, we'll get if you know, you won't spend the next like the rest of your life. You know, especially with somebody like Juice World, who's like on top of his game. I mean, arguably like one of the most popular hip hop artists, you know, right now or was, you know, yeah, and, and, and with and Pop Smoke, like, I mean, it, it, you know, I think that like, you could probably extend that. I mean, it's a little bit, it, you know, the, the reports that are coming out are a little bit, it's hard to say, but you know, it seems like it was like, you know, he died during a, a robbery at a house that he was renting. And, you know, but even then it's like, where's, I don't know, where's the security there? It's, it's, it's strange. It's strange, particularly like also an up and coming star, like undoubtedly. Very strange. Yeah, no. So anyway, I, I just figured we would like comment on that because it's such it's such like a like I read the headline, it's like such a body blow that this is album one and two. And it's just like it's such a tragedy that we're not that these guys aren't gonna make more music. You know, not to politicize it, but just connecting it to what's going on right now in the United States. Do you feel though that maybe there's like less security and less of an infrastructure there for specifically like hip hop artists or black artists? or artists of color, really, that have come from, say, you know, uh, poor means. I mean, yeah. I, I also think the possibility of making money is there in a different way, right? Like, there's a limit. And, and just I think the system is somewhat different. I mean, there's a limit to how much money a rock band is going to make. And if that rock band is going to make a lot of money, probably they're going to do that, like, dues paying two years, playing increasingly bigger rooms. Um so in some ways, I feel like one of the things with hip hop is like the extractive potential, right? The potential for an 18 year old to make a major label an incredible amount of money um, is much higher. And in some ways, like... But all the more reason why they should be, the, 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 these labels should be protecting and advising these artists. Yeah, but and I can't help but one, I can't help but say this. I mean, I don't, I, I'm not going to name a pop artist, but let's just, you know, insert pop artists here. I'm sure pop artists do drugs as well. And I'm sure they have drugs on them. 
And you just can't imagine something like this happening to, say, you know, um, I'll throw a name out, like Bruno Mars or something. I mean, some of it I wonder about, like, to get a little conspiratorial here, but maybe not too conspiratorial. I mean, like... Let's do it. Like, it is not disadvantageous to labels to have a bunch of hip-hop artists have short careers. If you're Drake, you get to set your terms, right? If you're Fetty Wap, right? Like 10 Fetty Wops and Fetty Wap blows up but doesn't have a major second album. And so like, I bet you Migos did better on Culture and Culture 2 than, I mean, I don't know exactly, Atlanta's maybe a bad example because it's a different system. But like, I do think that yeah, if you're a major label, sure, sign a bunch of um, Bobby Shmurdas, have them release one massive money-making song, and then they never get to renegotiate their contract. They never get power, uh, and you could just replace them with another 18-year-old kid. And if that's how the industry's set up, a byproduct is that there's less investment in these artists. And especially, you, and you put that on top of a time when, like, this is kind of point to the bigger things, is like, it's a depressing time, not just this last six months, but like the last 10 years, if not longer. And like, so yeah, a lot of people, I mean, I think that, you know, uh, I don't think it's a, it's, it's a coincidence that people are turning to like mood altering drugs that are antidepressants and then they kill people. Um, and I think that like you listen to Juice World's latest people, album. To be clear. <laughs> the drugs kill people. The drugs kill people. No, but like you listen to Juice World's... Yeah, we are a Scientology podcast now. <laughs> uh, no, you listen to Juice World's album and it's like, it doesn't surprise you. And it clearly like the situation when she died of a drug overdose, but like Juice World's latest album is a really sad album. And it's about someone who's really struggling with depression, with anxiety, with mental health issues. And like... Yeah, Xanax can help with those things. And if you take it with that proper like care, can kill you. And so I think you put lack of label stuff with generational depression and like you've got a perfect storm that gets you so many talented artists dying, like not even before their time, like before they really got a chance to start. Yeah, and it's, it's just, you know, it's interesting also because of the fact that we didn't. We haven't even mentioned Meg the Stallion either, who recently who recently was shot in the foot during like some sort of altercation. And here you you have another situation where you have another rising star, and there being like a certain amount of violence going on around her, and you just have to wonder like what is going on here, <laughs> you know? And oh yeah, yeah, definitely, it's definitely. But uh, to your to your please point, stay safe, Megan the Stallion. We need you. Yeah, one hundred percent. I will definitely, definitely uh, second that one. So speaking of young artists getting cycled through the music industry and getting fucked over, the main event of this episode is a company that's been making waves in the music industry, causing a lot of controversy, headlines, and so forth. They're called Hip Hypnosis Songs fund they're founded by a greek canadian named merc mccariatis and also chic co-founder nile rogers and they've been kind of upending the music industry specifically music publishing by paying top dollar to buy the rights to thousands of songs and the catalogs of hit making songwriters so basically in the past three years hypnosis spelled h-i-p-g-n-o-s-i-s 
has purchased nearly 7,500 songs and more than 1,000 number one hits, including songwriting rights to Bruno, Bruno Mars hits, Uptown Funk, Ed Sheeran's Shape of You, Chainsmokers Closer, Despacito. Recently, they acquired total rights to Rodney Jerkins' work, and he's worked with people like Whitney Houston and Beyonce. They cut a deal for 70% share of Mark Ronson's catalog, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And basically what it means is, is that they're giving these songwriters one lump sum of money to have complete control over their publishing rights and their songs. So to be clear, though, say a song like Ed Sheeran's Shape of You, Ed Sheeran didn't write that alone. There's other co-writers. So this company's going and talking to not Ed Sheeran necessarily, but his co-writers who get a cut of the royalties of Shape of You and are like paying them a set sum of money to have full control over their songwriting credit in which they earn royalties from. So this is all led by this Merck Mercariatus guy. And he was kind of been a long time mover and shaker in the music industry, managed Beyonce, got it broke into the industry managing a late stage Iron Maiden. And basically what he's doing and the reason why we're talking about this and the reason why it's causing such a stir in the music industry is that he's buying these songs and these catalogs of songwriters as if they're a painting or a work of art at Christie's, essentially offering artists double, if not more than other publishing companies would offer to have full rights over their music song credit. So basically, to get a hold on this, right, we got to talk about music publishing really quickly. Yeah, we're going to um, give you a little bit of context. So we're going to so do a little yeah, role so play, music- which I know that Sam likes. So <laughs> as, as, as he shakes his head. So like, let's do it real quick. So like, you're an artist. You're like writing a hit song. You wrote a hit song with, say, insert famous pop star here. So you're not the one singing it, but you were in the studio. You wrote the music. You got the sheet music. It's blowing up on the charts. Millions of plays on Spotify, radio hit. How are you making money? Royalties. Everybody's know that. But what actually do we mean by royalties if you're a co-writer of a hit song? How are you so, making so money? So first, first, off, first off, it's important to understand there's two kinds of copyright, right, on a song. There's the performance copyright and there's the songwriting copyright. Gotcha. We're going to forget the performance copyright because I can't sing for shit. I'm just an incredibly gifted songwriter, um, which is true. No, I'm just um, <laughs> no, yeah. so basically, So basically, even... Once you so you've got the copyright of the song, like the IP, the intellectual property of a song. There's a couple different ways it gets you make money as a songwriter, right? One is performance royalties. That's any time a song is performed, um, you get paid. One is mechanical. Any time a song is reproduced, right? Whether that's printing a bunch of sheet music, which is where these laws came from, or printing a bunch of CDs. Um, a third is sync, right? Which is any time a song or composition is melded with another form. So anytime, like in the, uh, anytime you see a song used on a TV show, that's sync. It's different. Um, and you... It, and there's varying it, levels of the amount of royalties that say like the songwriter would get versus the, versus the actual performer. So like, you know, George Strait, for example, 60 number one hits, but he has a team of songwriters that he works with. So depending on like which one it is, George Strait would get a certain, maybe a little bit more for like one of those royalties, royalties, and say like songwriters would get more for like another one. It, it so, varies, and it also depends so, on the contract. So the important thing to know here, right, is that for a long time, let's go back to George Strait for a second. This is George Strait reminding you, don't mess with Texas. 
means don't litter. For a long time, the performing artist at some level was in a better position. They tended to get more money than the songwriters. You can make a good, a really good living songwriting, but like not necessarily as much as you can by being a performer. Because of how the music industry has changed in recent years, that's, I mean, to a certain extent, still true because you can tour as a, no one wants to see the person who wrote all those Drake songs. Everyone wants to see Drake perform, not Drake's ghostwriter. Songwriting, because these laws are really old, it's all these weird, funky structural stuff. The big thing to know is that streaming was not invented when these laws were originally written in 1908 and 9, which means that Streaming actually counts not just as a performance because it's per- being performed from your computer speakers, but actually, this is what like kind of mind melding. You're making another copy of the song on when you press play, so they actually get twice as much royalties. So actually, songwriting, songwriting, and songwriting uh, properties are, are really valuable right now. But there's also a couple other changes, and I think Saxon, when you're talking about um, this being priced like a work of art, uh, I, I want to get a little bit further into that idea, right? Because it's not being priced like a work of art was in the 80s when like, I'm a rich lawyer, I live on the Upper East Side, and I want an abstract expressionist for my wall. For the last 20 years, art has become a high yield investment. It's done better than the stock market, and it's a place to park your money and get returns. So actually, in this really pressing thing, huge amounts of the world's best art is just in climate-controlled boxes in Switzerland. Um, No one gets to see it, it's just an investment. And basically, what Mercatus and Hypnosis Funds are doing is arguing that, in fact, music functions the same way. And so, uh, at at the cost of saying, of dropping a little bit of like total corporate lingo, right? This is what he says. I founded Hypnosis to give the investment community access to extraordinarily successful hit songs by culturally important artists and to establish songs as an uncorrelated asset class with attractive risk adjustment returns, right? So basically, he's saying that he wants, and this fund, the idea of it is fucking crazy. The idea of it is to get a bunch of Wall Street money, buy the biggest hit songs of the past 25 years, bundle them as an asset, and then put them on the stock market. Yeah. And so this is really possible sleeps, for, t- not just because of Spotify, but also because Spotify changed the music game in another way, right? 1978, 79, there was a major depression in America. And people didn't have much money, and gas was expensive, and so they stopped buying records. Currently, a $10 subscription to Spotify is all of your music. You're not going to ever stop paying that $10. If it's a bad month for you, either literally you pay $10 or you have no music. So, or you're only, you know, streaming off YouTube or whatever, right? So given that balance, there's a sense that the returns from music and the songwriter, like, tilted returns from music are a lot more stable. And so in fact, it's possible to like, do like a classic corporate thing, pick out the highest returning yields, or sorry, like the highest uh, yielding items, package them attractively, 
and then sell them on the global market. So if you want to diversify your investments, right, an uncorrelated asset class means yeah. that it's an asset class that doesn't move the way the rest of the stock market does, right? So, so if to you've be got clear, a major the asset like, is, let's say, say now, yeah. So to be clear, is is is, is shape of you. Yeah, the shape asset is basically Mark Ronson. Yeah, Mark Ronson's like entire catalog or the shape of you. That's the asset. But I, we should mention though that Mercuriatus comes from the music industry, and he also, you know, and you, we, this is something we can get into. He's not doing it so that he can put Shape of You, you know, uh, in a uh, lockbox in like Switzerland, because he also needs to make his money back, right? And the way that he's presenting it is that, okay, like I buy this, the rights to this, I give you a set sum, 200 million, whatever, that's yours to keep, but I didn't make that 200 million back. And so he's, the way I've understand, I understand it is that he has a team now that's going out as a publishing company and trying to get that song and get put it in places where he can make that money back. But you're saying he doesn't even have to do that. He could just invest in the I mean, stock I think market? it's both. Yeah. I think it's both. I mean, I, so yeah, so it, it's it's really tricky. I think it's possible, right? It seems to me it's possible that if you've got a really experienced team and you've got a whole bunch of musicians on the board, um, which is like a lot of these musicians are on the board that advises the company, um, it's possible that you could then place that song in more places um, more effectively. Totally possible, right? But I think the thing that we've learned is that when the stock market is involved, the way to make your money is to own shares is the Bezos way. What you want to do is you want to own shares in a publicly traded company. You want to have the price of those shares go up. And then you want to borrow money against those shares. Because if you're borrowing money, technically it's debt. And you don't have to pay any taxes on that, or not in the same way as you would if you were making $100 million. The way Bezos has made a ton of money, and, and it's kind of the broader way that uh, that a lot of stuff happens now. So, I mean, I fully believe that like this can be a money-making company at some level, but I also think it's a stock market investment. And by being pitched as an investment class, it opens it to financialization in a way that we haven't really seen in the music industry before. The idea that songs are another asset class like gold is <laughs> a fascinating one but also kind of i struggle to imagine a world in which the interchangeability of this doesn't at some level come into conflict with its functioning in the music industry yeah interesting interesting well yeah we should go into that a little bit you know how i mean because 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 you know one major this is definitely disrupting the music you know i hate to use that word but yeah it, he is a disruptor and it definitely is disrupting the music industry and how artists are beginning to think about their catalog or their ownership or whatever you want to call it like over their own music so like how do you think that that I mean, could actually affect music itself i don't know i mean it's interesting right like Mark Ronson is a mature artist, right? He's been around he's been around for a minute. He's had major hits. It's kind of at some level shocking for me and I think one of the really new things that's out there is these are not I could imagine being at the end of my career and selling the rights to my music for a lump sum. And clearly 
lots of artists at the beginning of their career lose control of their music. And that's a like a music industry tale as old as time from blues artists and country artists in the 20s and 30s to the Beatles who like literally never controlled their publishing, which is the most valuable publishing catalog basically in the world, to Taylor Swift, who's gone through all of this recently, right? Young artists don't have a leg to stand on. They don't have any leverage. It's fascinating that Mark Bronson has leverage, right? And clearly owns some of his own publishing. So it's a really interesting decision to cash out the way that he has. So let's just talk about that for a minute. So if you're like a new artist, you go ahead and sign to Universal. They give you in advance. You record the record. You put the record out. You don't get any royalties on that until you earn back your advance. And Universal owns what's called the master to go ahead and like use your song whenever and however they want. For example, make a deal with Spotify. <laughs> so yeah, but for somebody like Mark Ronson and Taylor Swift, who went through a lot of like legal hurdles to do it, they actually do own the masters, or let's just say the rights to their music. Right. So the way, so yeah, so the question is, okay, so like, let's say like I'm a co-writer of Shape of You and I don't have, you know, and other than that, I have a few minor hits and then like Hypnosis wants a part of Shape of You and they come to me and they try to buy my, my rights from Shape of You. Seems like a no brainer. But what you're saying is for somebody like Mark Ronson, who probably owns most of his catalog or maybe does own all of his catalog, like what's the point? So I got to thinking about this and the only thing I can come up with (laughs) Is that first of all, one, there's a limit on the time the song can gain royalties. In other words, before it becomes like public domain. And it's essentially tied roughly to like your lifespan and a little bit longer than that, right? And if you've learned anything, if you're an artist and you've learned anything from the last decade or 20 years, I think it's fair to say that the music industry is a little bit volatile. Just a little bit. It keeps getting upended, keeps changing, right? You know, streaming has restructured everything. So who knows what's to come? So, it's essentially you take the ma- you you take the money now, or you roll the dice on trying to earn as much as they're being that that the hypnosis is offering you, and possibly more or possibly less for the rest of your life. And if you got a song that's ten years old now that you co-wrote with Amy Winehouse, yeah, you're still earning royalties off of that. That song's everywhere, but you're not making as much as you were. And chances are the amount that those royalty checks are coming in is only going to go less and less and less. So why not just like pass, make, make the money that's on the table now, invest it, maybe invest it into hypnosis, <laughs> and then move on and continue to make music. But you know, you now, you may like a lump sum off of that. It seems in a weird way, like you're almost kind of making the safe investment in that sense. And, and, and it works, right, because Hypnosis is able to offer these artists so much money. And this is where you get into these, like, complicated, like, stock market froth stuff, right? Like, we've seen, if we've learned anything from the last 10 to 12 years, it's that there's a shit ton of, I mean generally money floating around saudi oil money in particular looking at you SoftBank, and uh there's a ton of money that can boost the valuation of something like that so an innovative idea and hypnosis is clearly an innovative idea like can get access especially someone with connections with the kind of cosign of someone like niles Ro- nile rogers has access to 
huge amounts of money. So the artist argument actually makes a fair bit of sense. The question to me is like, can this company actually, I mean, they've made money in the short term. Is it actually a fundamentally difference in the music industry? Or is this a version of WeWork, right? WeWork, everyone can remember, basically was paying wildly more for real estate than real estate companies that had been in the business forever were doing. And the real estate companies were like, this doesn't make any sense. This is just stock market. And WeWork's like, no, we've got a new platform. And then it turned out the 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 kind of established factors in the marketplace were right. And the question is like, the major labels in the publishing are like, this is crazy how much money he's paying. And it's unclear. Maybe, and this is one thing that, that gets at, is that it's possible he's kind of figured out that the music industry has changed in a fundamental way, right? That, uh, you know, you can call it like the beyondification of music. There's a couple of artists who are more successful than anyone has ever been, in some ways had more cultural, as much cultural impact as almost anyone. And then the vast, and that's a very narrow peak of the pyramid. And there's a lot fewer mid-level artists now than there used to be. And so there's a question that like, if, if, and, and this is this is where the relationship with this money, the music industry gets really interesting. Cause like at some level, right? Even though he's like doing a lot of trash talking of the established music industry, Hypnosis Funds is entirely parasitic off the work that they do, right? The music industry model is they get a hundred songwriters and they release those albums and push them out and they lose money on like 95 of them and four of them break even or whatever and one of them's Beyonce and it pays for the rest, right? And what he's saying is like, I only want to buy the Beyonce's. I only want to buy Beyonce's catalog. <laughs> And maybe it's possible that if you have enough money, you can just kind of swoop in and steal almost just the, the like the pick of the litter and that those will keep producing money and kind of leave the rest of the music industry having having created these artists and these catalogs. Like these catalogs didn't happen out of nowhere. These catalogs were like produced by major record labels and the artists and like it's the major, look, and don't get me wrong, like the major record labels are also a fundamentally exploitative system, but like, they also do create value. And so that, and that and that's a question, right? Like, is it possible to just snatch off the top and then kind of like leave the rest? Yeah, it is interesting. And I can't help but think that it's probably going to force the hand of these record labels to just then pay these artists more money. And I will say that it is parasitic 100%. You're not incorrect in that. However, as we mentioned before, when these labels pay for like 100 songwriters and one happens to you know break through pay for all the rest there's still a real tug and pull between the label and the artist for the artist to try to get back their masters because so it's hypnosis can't come in right away you know let's say whatever the hit song is tomorrow and go ahead and buy it out the rights unless they're going unless unless the artist or the songwriter no i'm incorrect about this i okay so because the songwriter masters, yeah. masters are for the recording and hypnosis doesn't buy any recordings hypnosis is buying the songwriting credits so my understanding is that if uh if um you know Mick, uh, mark ronson sells 
uh, up his part of Uptown Funk, he owns that right to Uptown, that part of Uptown Funk, because it's IP versus a master, which oftentimes artists are trying to buy back via their contracts. Okay, well, so let's break this down because this gets they can get really confusing. So let's stick sticking with what you just said. So Mark Ronson gives Hypnosis his master songwriting credit to Uptown Funk. Yeah. Who has the right? Hypnosis or the label now, which owns the recorded master? Who has the right to offer that song up to a car commercial? Because we're going uptown in a car. Because we're going uptown in a car. Yo, so they if it's uptown funk, they both have to agree. Interesting. If it's a re-recording of Uptown Funk, they just the songwriting. So then they would just have to deal with hypnosis. Yeah. So basically what, what it can do is like hypnosis could sell the melody of Uptown Funk with no lyrics, provided that Ronson wrote the melody. No sell lyrics. It. Lyrics too. Okay, lyrics too. Sell it to Acura for a commercial yeah. or, about driving or, in a car going uptown. Or, and this is where no one's writing about this, and I'm really interested, and I don't know, and I, like I wish I did. I think they've got right of refusal, right? And that's the other thing, right? That let's say you want to license it for somewhere. They can be like, no, we want more money. They can do whatever who's they that? want. Hypnosis. But who, who's trying to license it? Acura? Um, yeah, Acura's trying to license the song. Right. They got to get Hypnosis' say. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. So, I mean, yeah, so another thing is, is that, you know, to, so we should mention that we're probably wondering at some point during this episode, how does this guy have all this money? We should mention just in passing that he does have a number of investors that have been, that have uh, invested, I think, upwards of over a billion dollars into Hypnosis. Well over. It's, yeah, well it's, not over. It's, it's, it's a consortium of 12 major banks. Which is a sign uh, that they might three, that they see it as billion? A, right. Which which is a sign that they see it as a money making whatever you want to call it scheme idea entrepreneurial and I, no no and, and 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 this is what's crazy right and, and and at some level and this is the thing I'm really trying to think through I think we're trying to think through is like the music industry has always been a business but there's a business at, but there's a difference between being a business and being a finance business, right? Businesses deal with financing, but they have to like produce stuff and they have to have companies and they have to, right? And they they have employees and they're in a place and they produce a thing. Finance is just traded. Yeah. And there's a free flowing aspect to it. If you think about the subprime mortgage boom, right? Where they would take mortgages, package them, and then sell a derivative off of that, you could do that with songs now, right? I could have a balanced investment portfolio where I want some assets that are highly correlated to the market, like housing starts, and some assets that are not correlated to the market, like songs, which as we learned, are an uncorrelated asset class with attractive risk-adjusted returns, right? And you could put those into a portfolio and then sell that 
into a larger portfolio. It makes the intellectual property of songs accessible to the global market in a truly crazy way. And I don't really how much of that how much of that how much of that interest matters whether or not the song still gets whatever plays. Like how much of the actual like listening popularity of the song go into any of that? So yo, it really depends, right? It depends on how good a game they have. It seems to me, and and that and that's one of the big bets, right? There's interesting thing in their uh, uh, prospectus and in their uh, investment uh, reports, which I have to credit where credit is due. Those are very readable documents, guys. Those are entertaining. I shockingly enjoyed them, which is not true of everything. So like, good job whoever did the copywriting on the hypnosis funds trying to sell something it's got to be interesting you know great charts like they explain lots of stuff it's great anyway people killing it <laughs> at indesign fucking nerding out no um but uh so they talk about a couple of major threats right one is that streaming could change that currently there's a pretty open competitive market for streaming with like three or four major players uh, streaming could all coalesce into one. One is that like piracy could come back. One thing they don't talk about, which is really interesting, kind of going on to what you said, is like fundamental seismic changes in music listening taste or the, sh- the shape of music, right? Like if this is 19, you know, if this is a version of like, if it's 1970 and you buy these IP, yeah, dude, you're set. Like, you buy all the 60s rock IP, it's never going to be less valuable. But if you buy, if it's 1950, and you buy all the 40s and 30s IP, it's about to be worthless. <laughs> There's a version where, like, uh, I don't know, Bollywood comes in, or real talk, like, K-pop becomes, fully takes over, and all of a sudden, Shape of You is worthless. And... In fact, but all, does that I matter? That's that, the question. Does it matter? No, that matters. Then okay. that totally matters because this is the idea that songs have, pop songs have like a long tail. But it is. But but here, this is where I get confused, even myself. And so maybe I'm speaking for other people. But the thing, is, so maybe I'm speaking for other people, and my cat. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's not like a like a room with max occupancy. You can have Shape of You, and you can have whatever the latest K-pop hit is. Right. However... So how is it, how is one losing value when the other one becomes more popular? Oh, I mean, you could have both, but their whole thing is like... Let's be real here, right? And this is the, the, the problem with investing in certain kind of cultural assets, is they're um, mostly middle-aged, late middle-aged folks, um, and like with specific music business experience... And sometimes a generational change happens. Like, and they only buy evergreen songs. I mean, so one thing is with all of this discussion of publishing, right? And, you know, the discussion of of the kinds of money flow that's possible. You really get a sense of the way that, and I think hypnosis funds is a perfect example of the ways that publishing is a business that's designed to take, like, people's lived experiences and creativity like that's designed to take music which is a communal activity which people create all together in a sweaty room which connects with memories and folk traditions and all kind of stuff and take that 
and make it a clear IP that has a clear owner. Um, and then you can sell stuff against that. You can sell it. You can do all the, the tricks of making something a real commodity, right? And that has been to the advantage of the major labels and has been to the disadvantage of artists. And in particular, given American music, that's been to the advantage of primarily, if not exclusively white, major label owners and managers and wildly disproportionately black artists. And so I wanna talk a little bit about this idea of, of forever money. Marika Hughes is a, a cellist who plays in a variety of traditions, jazz, classical, experimental. And in the wake of some of the, the um, Black Lives Matter activity uh, and protests and, and the music business's um, response to it, she kind of issued this like public Facebook letter, which is, of, of course, it's the, the 2020 version of nailing the theses to the church door, right? Like a public Facebook status, where basically she called out music the music industry for kind of talking about you know shuffling the deck chairs in the titanic basically right like doing more diversion and inclusivity making these big public statements when the industry as a whole especially in america has been based um so exclusively on um exploitation and particularly exploitation of um black artists um and things like publishing, which is incredibly co complex and is designed to be as opaque as possible and is weighted in every way against artists. You know, you're a songwriter and just for like the privilege of like walking across, walking you across like uh, like the street, a publishing company gets 50% of your song, right? At every level it's designed to exploit artists and that over the long period of time that's created wealth for these music companies and taken away consistently wealth not just money right but wealth like wealth that could transfer from generation to generation wealth that you can plan against wealth that you can build on um from communities of color all across the country it's building off the advantages of many wealthy white americans have had it you know since the the founding of this country yeah no and and and, and i think that the kind, the fact that you can do the kinds of stuff that hypnosis is intending to do kind of really brings home that, yeah, like forever money exists. It exists well enough that you can sell it. Like this IP is an asset class that you can include in a balanced stock portfolio, which means that also like, um, it was an asset class always. And actually, uh, well, what uh, do you mean by, well, maybe we'll explain real quick. So by forever money, you mean like, like multi-generational money that you can make off of your creative work. Yeah. It's 75 years, right? For copyright. Which is um, like systematically, you know, been difficult for black Americans and other people of color in this country because the system is stacked against it, against them. And, and the system isn't just stacked against them in terms of the legal processes. It's also stacked against them in terms like, like the basic construction of this reality, right? Like the Rolling Stones write a blues song because it's based on a very specific system of uh, copyright laws. They can steal the style and not owe these blues artists who also got totally ripped off on publishing. They can owe them nothing. 
and who got ripped um, off because of you know the various reasons that have caused inequality and uh, on so many different levels in this country education access to a lawyer to look over the contract and so on being able to read <laughs> yeah it's so actually jeff tweedy um of all people the the leading light of wilco has um pledged to give away five percent of all of his songwriting money for the rest of his career um and then kind of to uh the idea that he, he was kind of put this public call out which was met with deafening crickets from the music industry to try to get other artists to create a fund that could then potentially begin to start thinking about ways to right these systemic wrongs. And and I thought it was like, I mean, it's painfully earnest, but it's also kind of awesome. I mean, like, you know, as some of the, the, the coverage about it pointed out, like, clearly Wilco's in the rock and roll tradition and therefore owes a tremendous amount of a tr- tremendous amount to the black musical tradition in the United States, but he's not just a Timberlake, right? Like there are artists who have made a lot more money from interacting with things that are a lot, a, a much fewer steps away from like specific nameable people named Michael Jackson. And so, and it was just interesting that they got like, it was the, he was like, he kind of, you know, said like, I don't, this is not the answer. I'm starting to think about it. Like, Five percent is about what I can do. Like, does anyone else want to join with me? And everyone's like, no, no, thank you. We don't. Well, yeah, which is really, it's really telling. And you know, at, at least we can say, regardless if anybody else joined him, it's not an empty gesture. It's maybe it's not a gesture that's going to fix the issue, but you know, he is at least trying something. However, there is another side to this. If you pair that with what we've been talking about with hypnosis, it gets really complicated because just to bring it back a little bit, Mercuriatus has also noted that he's actually interested in creating a songwriters union, something akin to the Screenwriters Guild, that, quote, would give songwriters more leverage to extract better deals from the industry's power brokers, which inevitably, from his parasitic business model, I'm sure he's he's meaning give the artist more give the artist more ownership over their own music so then he can make a deal with them directly and then once again not have to deal with the labels. And yet, so when we talk about a union, strengthening union, talk about generational wealth, talk about the talent of these artists making money that will last and like make and also like, you know, provide them a living, but <laughs> Yo, so I it's mean, a little bit more complicated is- when it comes to like you know when it's like he's supporting this this union but he's basically supporting this union to help his own company which is also creating arguably you know uh economic disparity as well within this industry yo so no that's a really good point and i think so and it's tricky if it's tricky because you're dealing with capitalism union- it, it, yeah, it's tricky because it most is capitalism, exactly. Uh, like, if a songwriter's union happens, I would be very supportive of it. I'm, I'm gonna not, until it happens, it sure seems like the thrust of his efforts have been raising money on Wall Street and not forming a songwriter's union and creating a strike. 
And the question and is, is like, does that exploitation just continue? If you go ahead and like, uh, you know, if so, he just bought the rights to Rodney Jerkins, who, as I mentioned, was a producer and songwriter who like worked with Whitney Houston and Beyonce. So he's set for life. His children are set for life. His grandchildren are set for life. But also, who's set for life or just continuing to expand their wealth off of the fact that he's bought the, his entire catalog is also a bunch of white wall street investors (laughs) so you know the question is like is the exploitation not just repackaged and sold to you with a pretty bow in it in a different form i mean i was thinking about this and 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 in both in this and and some some of like the the research i've I've been doing um for like my own like dissertation and i think the way to the way i'm thinking about it and i'd be interested to hear your take on it is like I think you've got to do like a structural analysis, like a Marxist style structural analysis, which means that one person can be both oppressor and oppressed, right? Like as a songwriter in this system, your labor is being extracted for profit. If you also own part of this machine that alienates your labor, you're also capital. But just because you're making money from the capital side of things doesn't make you not exploited as a worker. It's That's the same way that you can be, you know, most workers in America, many workers in America, not most workers in America, many workers in America have, like, anyone with retirement has some money in a mutual fund. They are not capitalists just because they have some money in a mutual fund, which invests in companies. And the same way that, like, I think a songwriter, even if they they have some stake in this kind of thing, the, the system is still fundamentally exploitative. And that's why, like, that forever money, I love that idea so much. Because it points out that no matter how you slice it, someone in this system is getting forever money. And the system as it's currently constituted only works if the people getting forever money are the people in control of the labels, right? Like there will never be a time where they share fairly because the second they share fairly, they're not in business anymore. Like it's a capitalist business. If they stop making money, they won't do it anymore. It it is the exploitive system which is presenting them with the lesser of two evils. I mean, let's be real here. I mean, you know, if if I'm a songwriter with a huge catalog, say like Mark Ronson, you know, it's hard to pit or it's hard to paint Mark Ronson as being exploited, and yet I'm sure that the amount of revenue and money that whatever labels <laughs> that he's been on probably made a considerable amount more money in total than he did for those songs. Now he has, you know, he's whatever wrangled the rights of those songs away from those labels, I, I suppose. And now he's presented with this deal. The hypnosis is, with, is presenting him and putting it on the table. And it's like basically a little less exploitative, but still. So he's going to take his money and run because it's a sure bet and it's the money on the ta- money money on the table. But let's be real: hypnosis and this Merc Merc Mercuriatus guy, chances are, are going to make a whole shit ton of a lot more money still than Mark Ronson. So it's basically like the lesser of two evils. And, and I the think thing is, there's if, also if Mark Ronson goes ahead. So just to finish, if you know, some as we mentioned, a lot of these artists have also invested into hypnosis or like are on the board. Now they're contributing to that forum or that that hierarchy that's that that's there. 
And so I don't know if we're ever actually solving the problem of the exploitation of American musicians who are, are, you know, or people of color that work in this industry. It's still there, you well, know? And so I, if you put them on the, I, I mean, mean, now it's now Rogers is a CEO, is the co-founder of hypnosis. That's not going to solve anything. The dream is on, is on his, is on it, is on his board. So is this Rodney Jerkins, you know, you, but you're still getting, but where do we start this show? We started this show with two up and coming like rappers and their lack of support because of the labels. The exploitation is still there. It's not being solved. Yeah, no, I, I totally, I totally agree. And, and it's also, I think that thinking back to this, like it's a 1% world, right? That's what we live in now. We live in a 1% world. And so, yeah, if you're in the 1% of artists, you can make, get this better deal. But the point is, if you think about, A, how you got there, which is you were one of 10,000 young artists who are being put through the major label grinding system, and the fact that, like, most of that money is being lost, you know, the most of the money that that system produces is still landing with these exploitative systems. If the 1% get a slightly better deal, that doesn't actually take away from how shitty it is for the other 99.99% of people who aren't Mark Ronson or Beyonce. And again, that's where like the forever money concept I just think is so useful because it's like, yo, the forever money's there. There's always forever money. These companies have existed since 1920. That's forever money. That's a hundred years of operations of making money. And it's like, where did the money go? And the fact is that once you start thinking about like, yeah, there's forever money there, who ends up with it? All of a sudden, it's just like a, a, a giant highlighter on the power structures that define this stuff. Um, and yeah, and so you do get this, like the flip side of that is the, of these top deals is the fact that in the streaming economy, the system is fine paying almost nothing to most artists, but still racking up huge plays from a constant churn and just letting them die. Xanax overdoses. Yeah, that's the unfortunate reality. Yeah, and to add to that, listening to music, which is really this sort of be this joyous, exalting, the way we connect to people, of you know, personal, very emotional, inspiring thing, now continues to have moral and ethical baggage to go with it. That all of a sudden these issues are assigned to what seems like a very innocent act of pressing play on a stream or buying a record, not to mention, you know, the, the issues regarding around uh, vinyl and the, and the environment, but put that aside, you know, it's like all I want, sometimes all I want to do, Sam, is just do drugs and listen to music. And yet it's uh, such an ethical dilemma to do those two things. Who's the blame? Both. <laughs> Who's the blame? Who's the blame? Well, I think that I think that that pretty much we we, we kind of touched on everything about this very strange development in the music industry, and I think that we're gonna have to just go ahead and see what happens and see what happens with uh, Merck Mercuriatus and Hypnosis, and if this continues, they continue to buy up all the number one hits and how that transforms the music industry and continues the uh, the exploitation train that is uh, late stage capitalism, but. Uh, you're listening to Money for Nothing. Do you have anything else to say before we go, Sam? Our theme music's by Bird Language. And next week we'll be, or in two weeks' time, we will be diving back into some history 
but we felt like we wanted to do a little a little uh, current affairs uh, episode. But yeah, we'll catch you again in two weeks. Thanks for listening. We're money for nothing. Mm-hmm.